What do you say to somebody who's dying? What do you write to your spouse who's being deployed? What do you offer to someone who's sitting in prison? What do you tell someone who is suffering? Words fail us often, don't they? We don't know what to say. And there are many circumstances in life in which we feel at a loss. We feel like we have nothing to offer. In our passage today, the Apostle Peter writes to a group of people who are oppressed, who are unpopular, who feel uncomfortable in the culture around them. And what does he say to them? Well, for the last three weeks, we've been walking through a series called The Beauty of Holiness. And if you haven't been with us, here's a a brief sketch. So we've looked first at the holy God who is transcendent, who is high above us and far beyond us, and yet who in his merciful kindness descends to minister to broken and rebellious people like us. And he actually grants a holy identity to rebels through the sacrifice of his son. And because we have been given a holy identity in Jesus Christ, God has called us to live out a holy life which reflects that we've been transformed that we're different. And today we turn to the final sermon in this series, a holy people. And I will give you my summary statement one last time to wrap all this up. A holy God is doing an eternal work through his holy son to transform sinners into his holy people by the work of his Holy Spirit so that they might live with him in a holy place forever. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, it's toward the end of your Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you, it's page 1014, or you can see it on the screen behind me. 1 Peter And we're going to start with the last verse of chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25. And we will read through verse 10 of chapter 2. This is the word of God. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Three sections today. Verses one through three, we see Peter's admonishment to crave the word in order to grow up. In verses four through eight, he says, draw near the Lord in order to be built up. And in verses nine and 10, proclaim the Lord's glories in order to point up. And in all this, we see that God is building a people who love his word and who proclaim his name. God is building a people who love his word and who proclaim his name. As we've done the last few weeks, whenever we jump into the middle of a book, we've got to get a little bit of context. Where are we coming from? Where are we going? Well, as I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, Peter is writing to Gentile believers who are scattered around the empire of Rome, especially in kind of the north part of the empire, out on the fringes of Asia. And he's writing to encourage them in the face of persecution and opposition to their Christian faith. They feel out of place. They don't feel like they fit in the culture around them. And they're actually pretty unpopular and even oppressed by the people around them. So what does he say to them? He encourages them by pointing to the future hope that they have through Jesus Christ. And Peter's big emphasis through this whole letter is that a person's salvation is not complete until it is finally realized in eternity. So their hope, their hope in Jesus is what sustains them through persecution and difficulty and hardship. And that hope in Jesus also motivates them to live holy lives in the here and now. They need to keep persevering until they reach the final glory. So Peter is just coming off a section in chapter 1 where he's challenging his readers to pursue holiness. Why? Because they've received the living and abiding word of God. The word was proclaimed to them. The good news has been shared with them. And as a result, something needs to happen. So we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we see that he's telling us to crave the word in order to grow up. What does he say? Chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. So. So what? Because you've received the word, because the living and abiding word of God was preached to you, the good news has been shared with you, and because the living and abiding word has brought you new life in Jesus, so... Put away, shed, take off the old clothes is the idea. Put away these things, malice, the desire or the intent to hurt, all deceit, trickery, falsehood, underhanded dealings, Hypocrisy, trying to appear like something you're not. Envy, wanting something that somebody else has and wanting to hurt them to get it. And all slander, cutting people with your words to others. 
using the tongue like a sword to chop them down as you talk about them. You've received the living and abiding word of God and it's given you new life in Jesus. So shed those practices which conform to the old way of life and don't align with what you've been made. And it's interesting here, one commentator notes that what has been gotten rid of is not the grosser vices of paganism Think sexual perversion, out-of-control parties, violence. What has been gotten rid of is not the grosser vices of paganism, but community-destroying vices that are often tolerated by the modern church. That pierces Because it doesn't matter how moral we look on the outside. It doesn't matter how, how good or how put together we, we seem to be. There can be a whole lot of corruption that's inside and that's invisible and that just spreads. And Peter's saying, put it off. Shed that garment. But Peter, God, how do we stop these practices that are they're, they're just so natural to us and they're so insidious and they're so invisible? Well, verse two, like newborn infants long for or crave the pure spiritual milk. Long for is a desire and a strong seeking after, a craving. Craving what? The pure spiritual milk. So this, he's not talking about something tangible that you put in your mouth and you swallow. He's talking about something spiritual, something that's not physical and it's pure. What is this milk? Well, Peter has just been talking about what? At the end of verse one, the living and abiding word, which gave them new life. So if they're supposed to crave milk, That milk is what will nourish them. Because what does he say? By it, by this pure spiritual milk, you may grow up into salvation. Why does a baby need milk? So I remember, as some of you do, or as some of you are in the middle of right now, when you have a newborn infant in your home, and in the middle of the night, and at the most inconvenient times, there's the cry. And the whale, and you think and you hope that it's going to stop, but it doesn't. Why? Because a newborn infant needs nourishment so that they will grow up. They will fill out. They will grow. And one of the most heart-wrenching things you will see is the hollow cheeks and the empty eyes and the swollen belly of a malnourished child. It's unnatural. It's not supposed to be like that. They need nourishment so they can grow up. And brothers and sisters, that is what you and I need. We cannot do without this milk. We cannot do without it. Otherwise, we will have hollow cheeks and sunken eyes and swollen bellies and wrecked bodies spiritually because we are not craving the pure spiritual milk that makes us grow up. But, question, how do you make yourself crave something that you don't crave? So kids, here's a question for you, and you can answer me. I know it's church. Here's a question for you. Do your, if your parents just say, crave broccoli, like broccoli, does that work? No, thank you. <laughs> the loudest voice is my own flesh and blood. <laughs> 
No, it doesn't work just to be told, crave something. So how do you crave? How do you crave the pure milk of the word when you don't crave it right now? Is it just buckle up, get in it, like it? What does Peter say in verse 3? I'll lead into it from verse 2. Like newborn infants long crave for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Tasting. Experiencing. What? What are we tasting? That the Lord is good. That he's kind. That he's merciful. That he has been gracious to me and to you. It is in the proclaimed word The word of God, the living and remaining word of God, which we hear preached to us and which we read, it's there that we taste that the Lord is good to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So as you taste that the Lord is good, as you get a little taste of it, you want more and you crave more and you go back for more. So we taste that the Lord is good in his word and that makes us want to go back to the word and crave the milk so that we can taste it again and again and taste him again. I love food. And I really love good food. And when I was a teenager, I basically just went for quantity. Isn't that what you do? If you're a teenager, you just you try to get as much food as you can for your money's worth. Or maybe if you're a parent with teens, you try to get as much food as you can for your money's worth. So my brothers and I, I have two younger brothers, really close in age, and the three of us, we loved going to Ryan's Buffet because you could get endless chicken wings. And so we had this goal every time we went to Ryan's that we would beat the number of chicken wings that we ate the last time. So we would lay out this napkin and we would eat chicken wings and, and stack up the bones into this pile. But now I'm getting to the point in my life where I'm, I'm going to pass on mediocre food in order to enjoy the good stuff. So I remember the first time that Liz and I went to um, Bacon Brothers over on Pelham Road near I-85. And... Uh, the first time we went, I think, together, we got this appetizer, which is a pimento cheese and bacon jam mixture. I never thought I would like pimento cheese. It never sounded appealing to me. But man, when I tasted that, it gave me a craving. And often, there's not, I don't get to go back very often, but when I do, I love to get that again because there's a craving for it. Brothers and sisters, a craving for something begins with a taste. And what is so interesting about addictions is that they promise so much with a taste, but they never come through. Ed Welch calls addictions a banquet in the grave. So what is Peter saying here? Malice is addicting because you feel powerful. You can hurt people, but it leaves you twisted and hard and cruel. Deceit and hypocrisy are addicting because you can make people believe that you're something other than what you seem. But it leaves you empty because you don't really have any identity. Envy is addicting because you can imagine getting what that other person has and hurting them so you can take it. But it leaves you empty because it's an illusion. Slander is addicting because you can make yourself look better by chopping other people down in your conversations. But in the end, you're the poisoned and the corrupted one. But there is a craving which fills you up and makes you grow. There is a craving which never lets you down or leaves you feeling empty. 
It's the craving for God's word in which you taste that the Lord is good. It is the only craving which will promise and come through better than your wildest dreams. Maybe not in that moment, but over the long term, it comes through better than you could ever imagine. And when you begin to taste that the Lord is good, that he has been merciful and kind and gracious to you, you want to go back for more and more and more. This is an, can I say it? This is an addiction which is worth investing in. It builds you up. It makes you weep and then laugh. It wrecks you and then makes you new. And for some of you, you have little or no craving for the word, perhaps because you've never been made alive by the word. You've never received the new life from the word, so you have no craving for that milk. Or perhaps, maybe because you have no craving because you don't look to the word for tasting that the Lord is good. You see it as, as a book of rules or, or a book of of confusing details. Brothers and sisters, when you come to the word to taste that the Lord is good, you want more and more and more. And so a holy people are a people who are longing for their God and you are growing up by his word. A longing and a growing people. This is a holy people. But Peter shifts to another picture to describe God's holy people. And he says, draw near the Lord in order to be built up. Verse four, as you come to him, as you are coming, and the idea has, it has the idea of drawing near, approaching. It's used of the Israelites in the Old Testament when they drew near to Mount Sinai as God came down in his power. They drew near to his presence, or it's used of them as they draw near to his tabernacle to meet with him, to hear from him. So as you are coming to him, as you are drawing near to him, to whom? Well, the Lord that you have tasted is good, but also he says here, as you come to him, a living stone And here's an image that he's going to draw out a little bit. But it's interesting that he's a living stone. We think of rocks as dead, inanimate objects. But here is one who is living and abiding. He is no hunk of rock like other idols and empty gods. He's a living God who who gives life to those who come to him. So this living stone has two responses He has been rejected by men. And wouldn't that give encouragement to these people to whom Peter is writing? People who feel rejected rejected by their culture. Unpopular with the people around them. And he says, brothers and sisters, you have a Lord who was rejected before you. And yet, he was in the sight of God, chosen And precious. This living stone was chosen by God. God set his choice upon this one, and he is valuable and precious to God. As you're coming to this living stone, as you're drawing near to him, what happens? You yourselves, verse 5, like living stones, are being built up. You yourselves, like living stones. So as we draw near to the great living stone, all of a sudden we are given life and we are made like him. We are little stones reflecting him. We'll see more of what that means in just a moment. Why are we made living stones? Because we are being built up into a spiritual house. And if you were here last week, you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We talked about the fact that God's dwelling place is no longer in a building with four walls, 
a structure that's in one location, God's dwelling is now in and among his people. So there is a living stone, and those who draw near to him are shaped into his likeness to be living stones built up into a house where God dwells. And why? To be a holy priesthood. We are created to be a house where God lives and abides. Why? So that we can be priests. What did the priests do? In the Old Testament, the priests were the ones who came into the presence of God to offer sacrifices on behalf of his people. And the priests in the nation of Israel were one tribe, the tribe of Levi, out of the rest of the people of Israel. But here, all those who approach and draw near the living stone are made priests. Those who can come into the presence of God and who offer what? Not sacrifices of animals with blood splattered on the altar. Not sacrifices of fruit or grain or incense, but sacrifices that are spiritual. Sacrifices that are motivated by the Spirit of God. Sacrifices of all sorts. Sacrifices of words, of thoughts, of actions, of talent, of money. Why? Why do we offer sacrifices? Why are we these priests? Because there is a God who is worthy to be worshipped. He is worthy for all that we have to be offered to him. All of my thoughts, all of my words, all of my life, all of my possessions are worthy to be given to him. And these sacrifices are acceptable to God. Why? Because I'm a good person? Because my gift is better than somebody else's gift? They're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way we can approach this God. And so as we draw near the living stone, our sacrifices to God are made acceptable through him. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. We are praying to the Father through the Son. Offering our sacrifice through him. Not because our prayers are perfect. They're often imperfect and they're often laced with all sorts of mixed motives. But we offer prayers to God in the name of Jesus. And that's how we should do everything, brothers and sisters. You put your offering into the plate on Sunday or you do it through the online giving. It should be done in the name of Jesus to God. Not a thoughtless, mindless duty, but an offering to God, which is only acceptable because it's through Jesus Christ. Peter gives us some validation, some substance for what he's saying here. In verse 6, he says, for it stands in Scripture. And here he takes the image of the stone to to a different level. And he quotes God In Isaiah chapter 28 saying, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Ah, there it is. There's the image of the stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Same phrase that he used previously. The living stone was chosen by God and is so valuable to him. And here again, he says, this living stone, God has ordained, he has established, he has appointed a stone in Zion, which is the cornerstone of what? We'll get to that in just a moment. It's the cornerstone of a new building. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This cornerstone is the most important stone of the structure because it's from this stone that everything is measured and it's on this stone that everything is built. If this stone is taken away, everything crumbles. But on this stone, everything is built. 
And so whoever believes in him, whoever sets their faith on this stone and is built up upon him will never be put to shame, will never crumble. Their faith will never be shown to be empty or misplaced. If you put your faith on the cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. But verse 7 says, so the honor is for you. And this is very similar to the word that was used of Jesus. He is chosen and precious, valuable in God's sight. And just as Christ is valuable to his father, just as he was chosen as the cornerstone by his father, so we have been chosen. And so we, as we put our faith upon him, are valuable and precious to him. But, but, verse 7, for those who do not believe, for those who do not set their hope on the cornerstone, what happens? Verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You reject Jesus Christ as your cornerstone, he is still the cornerstone. Mankind's response to Jesus does not change the reality of who he is. Mankind's attempts to ignore him and to dismiss him do not change that he is the hinge of history, that he is the cornerstone of everything. And so if you refuse to believe in him, he has still become the cornerstone. But what is he for you now? Verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now this stone has become not a cornerstone on which you build, but it has become the great obstacle, the great barrier, the great obstruction in your life, the scandal over which you trip and fall. And he says at the end of verse 8, they stumble, those who do not believe in the cornerstone, they stumble over the stone because they disobey the word. Here again, the word pops up. The living and abiding word of God, which continues forever. The good news which has been proclaimed. They disobey it. Well, how do you disobey a word? When the good news is proclaimed, it calls for a response. It calls for a response of faith and belief. And when you reject it and do not put your faith in the cornerstone and do not set your hope upon him, you disobey the word and stumble over the stone. And the last words of the verse are heavy. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Brothers and sisters, we cannot ignore or gloss over any words in Scripture. Even if they make us uncomfortable, we cannot write them off. And neither can we make them say something that they do not say. So, what does he say here? There are those who have been destined, and that is the same word. If you look back up in verse 6, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, laying, destining, appointing, establishing. God has laid a stone in Zion, his cornerstone, his son, who is chosen and precious. He has appointed his son as the cornerstone for all of humanity. But he has appointed and destined and established those who will disobey and who will stumble over the good news. The scripture does not say here that he has appointed people for eternal damnation. It says he has appointed or destined them 
to disobey the word and to stumble. Perhaps a person who is now rejecting the word, disobeying the good news that has been proclaimed, perhaps that person could turn and at some point in the future accept and believe. But at this moment, they are destined to reject. And here in this sentence, Peter brings together twin themes of Scripture which go together and which for much of human history have been pitted against each other. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Peter does not let people off the hook. They are responsible for rejecting the stone, for refusing to believe in the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. But neither does he say that men's decisions overrule God's control. God is not wringing his hands in despair because there are people who have rejected his son as the cornerstone. His redemptive plan moves forward and his purposes will be accomplished. So although we, in our puny, finite minds, cannot reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men, we must hold them together because Scripture holds them together. And so I would call to you who have not to this point set your hope upon the cornerstone, for you who have not believed in Jesus Christ as the one on whom you are building your life and building your faith, I call upon you to turn to him, to hear the good news which is being preached to you even at this moment, and to receive him and to set your faith upon him. The scripture says if you do, your faith will never be disappointed. Your faith will never be shown to have been misplaced. Our culture shouts at us that our faith is misplaced, that it's wrong, that it's unpopular. And yet God, the God of heaven says, you will never be put to shame. And the honor will be for you because your faith in the stone Your faith upon the cornerstone is valuable and precious to the God of heaven. So turn to him. Believe in him. Set your hope upon him. If you do not, if you will not make him your foundation, he will be your destruction. If you do not make him your cornerstone, he will be your stumbling stone. A holy people are those who are drawing near to this God in order to worship him. They are a believing people and they are a worshiping people. But these words about unbelievers stand in sharp contrast to what Peter says in the last section. He tells us to proclaim God's glories in order to point up. So what does he say? Verse 9. But you, in contrast to those who were destined to disobey the word and who have stumbled over the cornerstone, but you, you are a chosen race. And that word chosen is the same word used for Christ in verses 4 and 6. The one who was chosen by God and who was valuable and precious to him. Now Peter uses the same word for the believers who have been set upon the cornerstone. The cornerstone was chosen and all of the living stones who are built upon him were chosen. Chosen for what? Chosen to be part of a new race. A race of people who are made up of all races. There is no superior ethnicity for this chosen race is made up of every tribe and language and people and tongue. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of choosing, the doctrine of election, 
is never meant to be a doctrine for debate or friction. Why does Peter say you are a chosen race here to these people? Who is he talking to? Do you remember? He's talking to people that he describes as exiles, as those who are aliens, as those who are refugees, as those who are uncomfortable in their culture. They don't fit in. They don't know where to turn or where to find their identity. And Peter says, you're a chosen race. God has chosen you. So the doctrine of choosing is meant to be a doctrine that humbles us and gives us joy. I have been chosen to be a part of God's people, his new race. You are a royal priesthood, priests of the king. You have the opportunity to enter into the presence of the king and even into the family of the king and to offer sacrifices before him. Sacrifices of your life, your words, your thoughts, your possessions, your all, because he has chosen you to be a part of his priesthood. A holy nation, those who are set apart and distinct, and no longer is there a nation bound by natural boundaries, like the nation of Israel was in the Old Testament, now there is a nation that is among all the nations of the earth. But although it is among all those nations, that nation is distinct. It is different among them. It is shown to be different than them. And you are a people for God's own possession. You are God's. He has made you his own. And so, you belong. You are home. You are God's. What implications does this have for us? Well, first, did you notice that all the way through this passage, the language is, collective we us our people not me my mine person God's redemptive plan is primarily about a people and your individual salvation is to unite you to his people. It's not just for you. Your relationship to God is not just about him and you. It's about him and you and us. And so when someone is converted to Jesus and comes into our church, we don't just say, oh, that's nice. I'm glad for them. They got saved too. No, we say, you need us, and we need you. We need each other. We were made to be in relationship. And yet, doesn't our current culture just grate against this? Especially our Western culture with its individualism, where we barricade ourselves away from people so that we can have safety. I was listening to a TED Talk yesterday, for those of you who are familiar with those, uh, and this lady, a psychologist, was talking about how technology is impacting our connections with with one another. And she said this, people can't get enough of each other if, and only if, they can have each other at a distance in amounts that they can control I call it, she says, the Goldilocks effect. Not too close, not too far, just right. And she says, we are lonely, but we're afraid of intimacy. Brothers and sisters, we have to fight individualism. 
I want what I want. I want what makes me comfortable. I want what I think is good. God has not saved us. He's not saved me and you to go on our merry way deciding what's good for us as individuals. He has united us to his people. And we are part of a great race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So, are you regularly engaged with others? Listening to them, getting to know them, spending time with them. And do you let others in? To go a little further, are you willing for others to step into your life to confront your sin? Because after all, your sin isn't just about you, you're part of the people. You're part of the building. You're a living stone among many stones which make up God's dwelling. What you do impacts us all. And on the flip side, are you willing to step into the life of another brother and sister when you see them walking in sin? Or is it, ah, it's not really my business? We are a people. And so God wants us to take risks in relationships because we have been united to one another as part of the chosen race. We've been united to one another as part of his royal priesthood. We've been united to one another as part of his holy nation. We've been united to one another as part of his own people. We're in this together. We as a church are in this together. I need you to speak to me. And you need people to speak to you. But second implication, your primary identity. Where do you find it? What do you think your identity is? When somebody says, who are you? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? A business owner, after, after your name, after you say your name, I am so-and-so, then what are you? A business owner, a Democrat, Republican, Caucasian, Hispanic, African-American. To go deeper, what do you feel your identity is? If you were vulnerable, I am single, an addict, a failure, gay, rejected. If you have set your hope upon the cornerstone, your identity is not defined by what you think or what you feel or what the culture around you tells you. It's defined by the God who has said, you are chosen and precious to me. You are mine. You're part of my chosen race. You're part of my royal priesthood. You're part of my holy nation. You're part of my own possession. That's your identity if you are founded on the stone. And why has God given us this identity the middle of verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To announce, to herald the glories of God, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The one who said, you are not a people, but now you are my people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If this is who we are, brothers and sisters, then our purpose in life is to speak of the glories of God wherever we go and with whoever will listen, among each other and with all those who are outside. This is our purpose as individuals and this is our purpose as a church to proclaim 
the excellencies, the glories, the character of the God who has brought us out of darkness and made us his holy people. So a holy people are a rejoicing people and a proclaiming people. The holy God is terrifying as we see him in his splendor. But he is also beautiful in his holiness. A holy identity is beautiful because he is granting a new transformed reality to rebels who are unclean. A holy life is beautiful because it shows that something supernatural has happened inside. And a holy people are beautiful as they crave the word where they taste the Lord and grow up. A holy people are beautiful as they continue drawing near to the one in whom they have set their faith. And a holy people are beautiful as they proclaim the glories of the God who has made them holy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is your word. Your living and abiding word. The good news which has been preached to us. And I ask that you would cause us to crave this word so that we would taste that you are good and then grow up into you being built up as those who have set their hope upon the cornerstone and please help us to be people who overflow with the praises of you the one who has made us your own we pray in jesus name amen